Welcome to the encore of episode 120 of On the Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On the Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It was mid-2015, and I had left my career just six months earlier to pursue speaking as a business. I was feeling a bit unmoored. After having my days clearly defined by endless deadlines, I was the one who had to decide what was a priority. And I didn't have a support team yet to take care of any of the mundane details. For months, I had been consuming podcast episodes like it was my job and learning so much from them. One memorable takeaway was a sage advice I heard more than once on Pat Flynn's smart passive income. Advice Pat had heard from Jason Van Orden, host of Internet Business Mastery. There's a difference between just-in-case learning and just-in-time learning. I had been doing a lot of just-in-case learning over the previous six months, and it was time to pick a project that would help me take my side hustle to a six-figure business. Since podcasts had had such a big impact on me and I'd much rather talk than write, I set the intention to host a weekly show. I knew that would require a lot of focus and attention, especially since I wanted it to be a high quality show out of the gate. At the time, I couldn't have even dreamt that I would have the opportunity to interview Jason Van Orden and get to know him in real life. I wouldn't have dared to dream that I would meet Pat Flynn and he would agree to be on my show. And the thought never crossed my mind that I would ever interview Seth Godin. Seth is this week's Encore guest. Want to know the secret to getting amazing guests? Asking them. You will always get a no if you never ask. Your challenge for this week. When you first start a new project, your goals may be modest. Dream bigger. Stay with it and thoughtfully develop the connections that will help you far surpass your original goals. Set your sights on your version of Seth Godin and Pat Flynn. It may not happen overnight, but it will likely take a lot less time than you'd think once you start to actually start working towards these bigger goals. Try this and let me know how it goes. Before we dive into this week's interview, I'm facilitating a limited number of one-time mastermind sessions this fall. Do you want to attend one? The focus is how to leverage your network to discover new prospects and build your business regardless of the size of your email list. If you sign up, you'll receive feedback from me and other experienced business owners. These sessions are not for everyone. To qualify, you must be an author, academic, speaker, coach, and or consultant who makes consistent business income selling products or services. There will be eight people max in each session, so there are a limited number of spots. The cost is $100 for a one-time session, and there is pre-work to help you make the most of our time together. I'm giving early access to my email list, and then we'll open up this offer to my network. If this sounds like you, and you'd like to be considered for an upcoming mastermind session, please email me at robbie at robbysamuels.com to let me know you'd like to receive the application. Also, a variation of the story I shared today was first published in my weekly email on November 13th, 2018, and will be featured in my new book coming out later this year. Now, on to this week's Encore interview. Two decades ago, Business Week said today's guest may be the ultimate entrepreneur for the information age because he's as focused on spreading ideas as the ideas themselves. He's a world-renowned speaker, and author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. Entrepreneur said his blog was one of the most loved marketing blogs on the internet. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting leadership, and most of all, changing everything. Some of his most well-known books include Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. His newest book, 
This Is Marketing, was released this month. He has founded several companies, including Yogodyne and Squidoo, and is the founder of Alt-MBA and the Marketing Seminar, online workshops that have transformed the work of thousands of people. In recognition of his ability to create and spread powerful ideas, he was inducted into the American Marketing Association's Marketing Hall of Fame earlier this year. Please join me in welcoming Seth Godin. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Seth, thank you so much for joining from your office just outside of New York City. I, I hear you're a little under the weather right now, so thanks for sticking with this. Um, I want to just jump right in. It's a podcast about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think the easiest way to define leadership is to talk first about what it's not, and it's not management. Management is based on authority. It's based on getting people to do what you want them to do because you have power over them. And most of our institutions are based on management. Mm -hmm. We need management. You can't have McDonald's and you can't have pacemakers if you don't have management. But leadership is totally different. Leadership is based on enrollment and it's based on responsibility, not authority. You don't have to have responsibility to lead. I mean, you don't have to have authority to lead. And so your question was, when did I realize I had the skills to be a leader? And the answer is, no one is born with the skills to be a leader. They are acquired. First, you decide to be a leader, and then you acquire the skills. And the skills involve being able to describe a version of the future that other people want to have arrive, earning the trust to have them hear you and believe you, and then the discernment to differentiate between the people who want to go there and the people who don't. Mm -hmm. And finally, the guts to do things that might not work. And this idea, it might not work, is at the heart of what I've been trying to teach people for a long time. Yeah, the willingness to, to even have a vision of the world, to share it, to have people trust that you have a shared interest in, in what you're creating together, and you're all going to try to figure it out, even though it may not work. I mean, that, I love this description. Exactly, right. So early on, I know, you know you've written about this and you've been interviewed a little bit about this, experiences you've had as a younger person, you know, even going back to you know, grade school and high school and college, like um, you were not the person who was at the front of the room, like running for office. Um, you had some difficult times in childhood. What well, do you I'm not, I don't want to call them difficult because I was super lucky. I won the parent lottery. Uh, I, I grew up in a great home. Uh, I'll also point out, I ran for office all the time. I just lost. All the time. <laughs> so you were, so you're ambitious. So, so this is part of the learning, even doing things, even though they may not work out. So you were like that even back then. Yeah. I ran for the head of the safety patrol in fifth grade. I lost. I ran for student council, freshman president, in ninth grade. I lost. I lost in 10th grade. I lost in 11th grade and I lost in 12th grade. And then when I went to college, I swore I would never run for anything. And I ran unopposed for dorm rep and I lost. These, this is true. These are all true stories. Wow. Um, getting elected is not my skill. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I actually did the same thing. I, I can't remember what year it was. Sometime in high school, I ran for student body something or other. And I realized it's just a popularity contest. So later that year, all the people who got elected, I had them creating signs for an event that I was planning. Because I knew well. how to work a system. Leadership. <laughs> I knew organizing and leadership, and it wasn't about being elected. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. Um, so did, did you have people in your life back then that you looked up to as being the kind of leader that you hope to be? Yeah, so for me, um, leadership usually begins with assertions. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I need to assert that I want to go somewhere. And, and this is part of why marketing is difficult for so many people. And one of the things I'm, I'm writing about, and this is marketing, is if you can't describe the change you seek to make in the world, then you're not a marketer. You're a cog in somebody else's system. That what it means to be a marketer today is not that you have an ad budget. What it means is that there's a change you seek to make in the world. And you are asserting that things will be better if that change occurs. You tell that story to people. And if they like it, they buy it. Now you are a marketer. Maybe they buy it with money. Maybe they buy it by voting for you. Maybe they buy it by changing their behavior, but that's what marketing is. Mm -hmm. So if you're a caring doctor, she can assert that smoking is a bad idea and she can lead a patient to stop smoking. On the other hand, if you're passive, I think you're a bad doctor. You say the decisions are up to the patient. I'm not going to say anything. 
Right. That's not leadership, right? right? That's just prescription writing. And so when I was growing up, I began with the assertions. That was my first step. Both my parents were terrific. And um, we had a household where people made assertions, where you sat around the dinner table and said, why is this this way? We can make this better. And how do we contribute to this? And there were always people at our house, 20 people, 40 people for Thanksgiving dinner, each one of whom was wrestling with where they wanted to go, with the change they wanted to make in the world. So I thought this was normal uh -huh. to make assertions. And once you start making assertions and you start imagining that there's a better way, then the generous thing to do is lead people there, not to just to write an op-ed piece and walk away, but to <laughs> say, let's figure out what we have to do. Where's the work? Where's the heavy lifting, the emotional labor that can lead us from where we are to that other place it feels to me like the right place. Was it surprising and, yeah. to you that people weren't also of the mindset to have these assertions in their life as you got to realize other people weren't doing this? Was that surprising? Because you were like, this is just how it is. We always like look it, at how things get better. It is better. still surprising. Mm. It is, you know, there's this word sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R, which describes uh, the fact that one day you realize that other people have a noise in their head that's different than the noise you have in your head. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting better at that, but I still don't understand people who sit by passively in a situation they're not happy in saying they can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Of course we can do something about it. We might not be able to fix it. We might not be able to win, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's fascinating to me is so many people around the world like sports, which I don't understand sports, but the people who do like sports, if, you have, if your team is down by three goals with 15 minutes left in the game, you don't want them to stop playing, yeah. right? But that's what human beings do all the time, right? I'm 19 years old. I'm, I have $8,000 in student debt. I give up. You're 19. You're going to live for another 100 years. How can you say, I give up? And so the essence of this grassroots marketing that we're now dealing with is not that someone in power is telling the grassroots what to do. It's the people in the grassroots who care can publish, they can speak up, they can connect, and they can lead. Right. It's, it's different from even you know, 20 years ago. Everyone can put their voice out there now there's fewer gatekeepers stopping them from doing that, but not everyone's still not everyone's doing it, even though anyone could go put something together and, and lead. I, you know, it's interesting you're saying this because I even think about it. My realm is networking and building relationships and I'm headed to a conference. That's a first, a first time I'm going to this event and I've already organized a meetup. Um, right. I have like 20 people signed up to go. And I, I, you know, two weeks ago, I didn't know, I think I knew two people going to this event and now there are 20 people that I'm planning up with and we're interacting ahead of time and connecting and engaging. And I'm thinking, well, why would I want to walk into an event only knowing two people? Like there's thousands of people here. I would just wander around lost. So I was like, let me put something out there and book a restaurant. It's all done. It's to me super easy. Exactly. And I'm like you, why wouldn't people do this? Right. And so the leadership, that I know now why they don't do it. I'm still puzzled that even that though I know why, <laughs> that they're still wrestling with it. So back when AOL was the king, when AOL was the internet, they were my company's biggest customer. And they had a partner conference where they invited the 150 companies like mine to come together so that Steve Case and Ted Leonsis could give speeches and describe the future of AOL. So they are my 150. 49, quote, competitors. Right. But I never thought of them as my competitors. Well, this guy named Tom, this is basically what you just did. This guy named Tom organized an event in his suite at the hotel. And he had 15 of us come. And we all shared every detail of our contracts with AOL. So all 15 of us learned, oh, this guy got this clause. This guy got this clause. This guy got this clause. And so each one of us could demand the same so every one of the 15 of us got better, right? And I've thought about that meeting a million times because any one of the 150 people could have organized it, but only Tom did. Mm -hmm. And the reason people don't do it is because of this might not work. Like if you do nothing, 
it's definitely not going to work. So you don't have to deal with the might part. Right. And it's the might part that freaks people out. Yeah. Because if you try and it doesn't work, then they failed. If they don't try, well, they just didn't try. So it's, exactly. so, it's so much about that mindset piece where I just, I guess, you know, I guess doing is what helps you do it again. You know, doing, even if it doesn't work out 100%, right? The act of doing things leads you to thinking, well, you know what? I can do that again. I can try a little harder. I can try this differently. But like, you don't learn anything if you don't do anything. Well, you know, how about this? Here's a a lottery ticket. There's a one in 200 million million chance you're going to win. You want it? Almost everyone would say, sure. (laughs) They say, here's a blog post. You want to write it? There's a one in 200 million chance it's going to go big. Want to write it? Nah. Like, what's the difference between the two? Yeah. Well, the difference between the two is the lottery ticket is deliberately inherently random. Mm. If you don't win the lottery, it's clearly not your fault. But writing and leading, it feels personal. And so we've been trained. It's not people's fault. It's this, it's the system trained them from fifth from the age of five mm-hmm. to fit in, to do what they're told, to bring a number two pencil, to do standardized tests. We built school to create compliant factory workers. That was what it's for. So, so if your, it works, you're going to be a compliant factory worker. Was your schooling any different than that? Or was it really your home life that helped influence you to do things a little differently? Well, my thesis is that everyone is homeschooled. That from three o'clock to 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. plus the first five years of your life, yep. you're homeschooled. And for people who aren't fortunate, that's really sad because they're parked in front of a television or they're in an abusive home or they don't have enough. They feel insufficient. Yeah. And so the cycle continues. You know, for me, my homeschooling consisted of constantly trying to solve interesting problems, constantly being exposed to what it meant to be a leader. Uh, that free range kids is not just a clever idea. It really works. That putting your kids into the world so they can learn by leading is the single best way to grow kids who lead. And yeah. there's, no, there's no doubt about this. And yet, even smart parents say, great, but how do I make sure my kid gets into a famous college? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm listening with both ears because I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and, and six-month-old. And I've been home with both of them since birth. And my, my toddler's about to go into preschool. But like you said, he's still with me a lot of hours of the day. Right. And I think a lot about sort of how to expose them. My, my dad put me in situations where I got a chance to interact with the world. I was, I was working at a flea market booth at a very young age, like eight, nine, 10, 12 years Perfect. old. Yep. And you know, everyone who worked in the booth with me was six, eight, 10, 12 years older than me. And then all the customers and boy, did I learn the skills, you know, of, and his motto, you know, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never work for your own parents. It's rough. <laughs> but it was also fantastic just, you know, given more and more responsibility over time and learning what it is to interact with adults and use, use words to make your point and to market. I mean, I was upselling. I was 10 years old and like they're walking out with $100 of the stuff they didn't know they needed. They may not have needed. I don't know if they needed it. But right. I well, it's called a flea market for a reason. It's not like it was <laughs> false advertising. Well, yeah, that's true. So, um, so I think you're right. Like giving different opportunities like that. So you you have amassed like you're you're just a prolific writer. I mean, the more I I didn't know this about you. I I, I well, part of it is I didn't quite understand what um the was a book bundler. Is that the word? I I finally no, understood. It's not. It. It's a book packager. Book packager. So yeah. I you know it just means that you write a lot. Like you you've always had that gift. Is and then at some point you realize you could. Uh, your own message, I'm interrupting or? you here. Interrupting right, go ahead. You here. I want to hear more about. Do not have a gift. My high school English teacher wrote in my yearbook in pain in pen. You are the bane of my existence, and you will <laughs> never amount to anything. Wow. In college, I took one English class. I am not gifted. That's a trap. And I need to call people out on that. Yes, I made 120 books, a book a month for 10 years with my team. Did I write some of them? Yeah, I wrote some of them. I outlined most of them. I invented all of them. But the work was, how do you take something from this is an idea to this is in the bookstore? And then the trick, the path was speak more clearly. Everyone can learn to speak more clearly. Once you learn to speak more clearly, 
All you need to do is write down what you just said. Mm-hmm. That's it. So I am not a great writer. I can't write a novel that will make you cry. I have no idea how to right. do it. I know how to speak clearly because I practiced it. Mm-hmm. And once I can speak clearly, I just write down what I was about to say. So 7,000 blog posts isn't that hard because everyone has said 7,000 things. I just write them down. Well, and it also sounds like you get better at taking that path from idea to the written form by writing 7,000 blog posts. Like if you, I remember actually writing my first blog post and I'm good friends with Dory Clark. And I said, Dory, Dory, I wrote this thing. And she's great. Write another one. Exactly. She <laughs> I was like, from, but I just spent weeks and weeks doing this. And she's like, yeah. write another one. And finally, I got to the point where I was writing one a week for months. And that's, you know, my confidence shifted. I stressed so much initially about, you know, every little piece of it. And now I just feel like, you know what, write it and ship it, write it and ship it, get responses, learn from it, see what works, rework it. You know, exactly. I finally wrote a book because of that. I think I would never have done that if I was still just sitting there staring at this thing, hoping it was good enough right. to send. Thank you, Dory. Good job. <laughs> yeah, she, she's, le- she's learned that lesson well herself and she's passing it along to all of us, which is so necessary. She gives me a lot of other stage advice. I was trying to start an online coaching program about eight months ago and she said, you're going to learn a lot. And that was her entire statement to me. And eight months later, I can agree with her. I learned so much in that process of just trying and trying. And if I didn't try it, I would still be sitting here saying, I don't have an online coaching program. Exactly. You know, you kind of have to put it yourself out there. So that, that feels like it's the core of your message. Um, tell me a little bit about the core of the message in this new book that you're putting out there, which clearly you keep thinking of new things you want to tell us, clearly tell us. So what is it in this newest book? Well, I, I want to start by saying that I'm a hypocrite. And uh, more than once I have said I'm done with books. More than once I've said I'm done with traditional publishing. and I'm owning the fact that I'm a hypocrite. I'm doing this book because I've never, in the last 10 years anyway, woken up saying, it's time for me to write a book. What should I write about? Instead, what happens is sometimes uh, uh, a challenge, a a void in the world shows up and will not let me go until I do something with it more than a blog post. So blog posts are great because I can get rid of an idea and I don't have to have it take over my life. But in this case, the the marketing seminar, the program I run online, 6,500 people have taken it so far. It's transformative. Some people don't want to sign up for a multi-hundred dollar thing. And I said, well, what's the essence of what we're learning from these thousands of people and these thousands of interactions? And there are two or three really significant ideas that go against most of what anyone who thinks about marketing thinks about. So it begins with this. The smallest viable audience is the only way forward, that that is the opposite of the way marketers have been taught to think, that you make something very specific for a very specific group of people that puts you on the hook. Because if they don't like it, that's all you got. You got to start over. That's the mistake that most people make online is they say, well, there's a billion people online. Someone's going to like it. And you just use that word. I'll put it out there. I don't believe we should put things out there. I think we should find a small group of people and serve them and serve them so well that they ask us for more and serve them so well that they tell other people. I just want to say yeah. that, that that actually kind of was, now that you're saying it, one of the lessons I learned because initially, so I teach networking. It's really amorphous and it could be for anyone. So I had to keep trying to figure out who my audience was. So initially, despite my landing page, I, I created my first cohort. And I say despite, because they didn't say yes because of what I wrote down. They said yes because they knew me. Right. And then when I went to do it again, and I, you know, updated the landing page and I had all the testimonials, et cetera, (laughs) I had hundreds of people going there and no one was clicking to schedule a call. But meanwhile, all of these women, entrepreneurs in their 50s, were reaching out to me, help them launch a book, help them launch a podcast, business strategy, and, you know, smack me upside the head finally. Oh, if I package something for them, maybe they'd be interested. And so I revamped everything, renamed it, listened to what they wanted, gave a bunch of free resources away, and then then went out and said, hey, do you want to join this cohort? I think I asked eight or nine people and got four yeses. This wasn't like go. I had to ask hundreds and thousands exactly. of people. Exactly, because you were specific. Yes. So that's 
part one. Part two is why are we marketing? All we do when we're marketing is make change happen. If you are not interested in changing someone, then you're not a marketer. So this tiny group, who, what change are you trying to make? Who are you trying to change? How are you trying to change them? So we keep coming back to this question, who's it for and what's it for? And that thing you're about to do, that meeting you're about to go to, that thing you're going to put in the world, what's it for? And if you don't know what's it for, don't do it, right? And then <clears throat> the third idea is that, and this is really this changed my life once I read about it and started to explore it. Keith Johnstone wrote a book called Impro 50 years ago. And the idea is simple. All theater is about status roles. So status roles are who's up, who's down. And this interaction we're about to have, are you going to move up or are you going to move down? Mm. Well, it's not about theater. It's about life. <laughs> All life is about status roles. And if you can see the status roles, and you realize the change you are offering may threaten those status roles, now the story you tell will be either aligned or not aligned with what people are telling themselves about status. So the example that I use a lot is The Godfather. And in the movie The Godfather, there is nothing in all three movies, but especially the first one, but status role exchange. And the opening scene with The Undertaker, 95-pound Bonacera, uh, The Undertaker, interacting with Don at his daughter's wedding, it's all about status roles. Mm -hmm. So when someone shows up and offers you to buy something, offers you to get some coaching, offers you to interact, the question we ask ourselves are, do I trust this person or should I ignore them? And then the second question is, what will this do to my status? Mm -hmm. Which leads around to the essence of culture and the essence of status is people like us do things like this. People begin with, well, who are people like us? They don't care about other people, people like us. And things like this, what is it that we do? Because if you are a marketer, you're a culture maker. And if the culture is determined that people like us do things like this. So the people in my, psych, in my circle at this high school wear Supreme. We don't just wear Supreme, we wear recent Supreme. People like us do things like this. That's why there's a line out the door. Not because those t-shirts keep you warmer than regular t-shirts. Right but because people like us do things like this. Mm -hmm. So if you describe to me any marketing success, I can take it apart based on the three things I've just told you. Yeah, I, I actually, as you're saying this, I'm visualizing Mac products. Yeah. So clearly, because they, they articulate that story really well. I think I can see what you're saying and what they do. And, and actually that builds people wanting to stand online when the next thing comes out because people like us do that. And the frustration is Tim, late Steve, and all of Tim's career changed who the people like us are, mm -hmm. and they changed what the things like this are. So they lost me, and they lost millions of people like me, because we were the early adopters. We got status from telling ourselves we were smarter than everyone else, and we got pleasure out of the new thing. But Tim said... The people I'm serving are my shareholders, and the way to make the stock price go up is to make banal, predictable products for the masses, mm -hmm. and shifted from being a tech company to a luxury goods company. And if you look at the last five years of Apple, they haven't launched one product that yeah. changed people's lives the way all the products that succeeded before that did. Right. And so I'm allowed to whine about that. But he said, I never promised you that. He says, I just want to make the stock price go up. And he's yeah. doing it. But what always happens is you can't do it forever. And they're going to crash. I'm not sure when. But then someone else will come along for people like me who said, well, now we're going to do things like this. And that will raise our status again. And then the circle will continue. This is awesome. I, I wonder if a lot of times people hear what you're saying, but they still don't know how to apply it to their life. So the book kind of walks them through this a little bit. Yeah. So my writing style is it's, I'm not capable of writing more than five pages in a row without starting a new chapter. So it's many, many examples and stories because this is the way I talk. And so yeah. it's the way I write. It's, well, consider this and consider this and consider this. And I talk a lot about, um, tiny businesses, because I'm interested in those more than big businesses, 
because most people have a tiny business. So mm-hmm. an example um, in the book is Danny Meyer owns a bunch of restaurants in New York. He also started Shake Shack. So he's your local neighborhood billionaire restaurant owner. And um, Shake Shack, uh, the restaurants he owns, he treats his people differently than in most restaurants. And he wants them to have parental leave and uh, healthcare and a real career. But you can't do that if you have tipping because the tips only go to the people in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. The, the people in the back, the dishwashers and the chefs get nothing. So he's banned tipping at Union Square Cafe and a bunch of his other restaurants. But raise the price 20% to make up for it. So if you are a normal diner, nothing has changed. Because you're leaving, it costs you the same amount. Same amount of money, yeah. There's a whole bunch of people that freaked out. And he is now gradually working his way back up. But if you are a certain kind of diner, your status is very threatened by this. Because tipping is a way to adjust your status in juxtaposition with the waiter. That if the waiter sees you as a big tipper, you believe the waiter will act a certain way. Your status is going up. The waiter's status is going down with you, but the waiter's status is going up with the other waiters because they got your table, right? And so for 50 bucks, you got to act like a king if you're the the patron. And Danny took that away, right? On the other hand, if you look at the way some people pick a restaurant, they search by the number of dollar signs next to it in a search engine. And the search engines don't know how to differentiate between uh, tipping restaurants and non-tipping restaurants. So he looks more expensive. So a different kind of person feels their status threatened because they say, oh, I can't afford to go there. <laughs> and then the, the other thing we're doing this week is right after the book comes out, I'm launching a collector's edition. And inside the collector's edition are eight copies of the book. And each of the copies of the book has a different cover. So I've made eight limited edition covers. There's only 2,000 sets of these books. So one of them has on the cover uh, a guy from Boston named Kitar Bear. Yes, I'm in, I'm in Boston. I'm very familiar with Kitar. You know, have you ever met him? I have not met him in person. I've seen him play. We talked a couple weeks ago on the phone. Pretty amazing. Kitar Bear stands on the corner in Boston dressed in a bear suit. Yep. Playing the guitar, which is a little bit like a, a electric xylophone piano thing, and Boston loves him. He, I asked him if he would come to New York for an event, and he said nope, because the last time he came, Mick Jagger had him come to a party, and Boston got so angry at him that he promised he would never do it again. It was like the Babe Ruth thing all over again. <laughs> so the point is, how does guitar bear? make such a good living playing the guitar in a bear suit? Why does the bear suit matter? What's the interaction like? Because he's a marketer. So that's why I put him on the cover. Brilliant. Or um, Jill Greenberg, the brilliant photographer. Like anyone can buy a camera now, right? So how does someone like Jill buy a camera and change the world of high-end photography? Uh, So you've got people... um, Marshall Gans, who teaches at Harvard, mm-hmm. uh, who's a friend. Marshall started his career with Cesar Chavez and worked all the way up through Obama with only one sentence. People like us do things like this. Figure out who the people like us are. Cesar Chavez did not need to persuade everyone. He just needed to persuade enough people. Mm-hmm. So I've got an example from every entity you can think of, from religions to coaches to freelancers. All of this is getting at the essence of what it means to lead by changing other people. I love this because then people can see themselves in these stories and figure out how to take the ideas and apply them to their own life. I had the good fortune of teaching Marshall Ganz's content. I was teaching a community organizing course up in, up in the Boston area for many years. Uh, got to know him a little bit. So uh, great examples too of people that mo- a lot of people wouldn't know um, I wouldn't know their backstory. Like I see Kitar Bear and I'm always like curious how he makes that work. So now I want to know, how does he make that work? Um, what is it you find most rewarding about sort of being able to put out this kind of content and, and put out these alt MBA and the marketing uh, workshops that you do? Like what's, what's most rewarding about that? I think that what happened a bunch of years ago is it became an obligation, a happy obligation. I've been a teacher since I was 
17. I love teaching. But as I've been fortunate enough to earn this following and this trust, I can't walk away from this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I refuse to teach shortcuts. I refuse to say, yeah, you can spam some people. You can do that hustle thing. You can, right? Because I think in exchange for the privilege I've gotten, I need to make the culture better for the people who are coming next. Mm -hmm. And so there are definitely days I don't want to write another blog post, right? There are also days I want to write five, but I only do one a day. Yeah. And I say to myself, but there's an exchange going on here. There's a promise. And as the teacher to this cohort, I need to keep raising the bar. And I know I'm going to be wrong sometimes, but I'm not trying to say, how do I get the most out of them? I'm saying, how do I give them the most that I can? Mm. So the fact that most of my stuff is free makes me happy because free ideas are easier to spread in some ways. Mm-hmm. When we built the Alt-MBA three years ago, the idea there was very different. And it was, what would the best online course in history be like? If I, instead of trying to make it as cheap as possible, tried to make it expensive. If I tried to make it as easy as possible, tried to make it really difficult. If I tried to make it as impersonal as possible, tried to make it really personal. If I had no tests, no accredited, like I've made a list of all the things that were online courses were headed and I did the opposite for all of them. And so we've got uh, cohorts. We only do 125 people in a cohort. We've got coaches. We've got Zoom as you and I are talking right now. In 45 countries, I have uh, dozens and dozens of coaches, all of whom are alumni. And when you add it all up, this 30-day sprint, it's not for everyone. It's almost for no one. 99% of the people, not for you. But if you're in it, it will change you. And that's what marketers do. So I tell people the change we're going to make. I make them a promise, and then we keep it. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't have enough of that in the, way, in the world of marketing today. So I haven't actually myself signed up for alt mba partly because i i'm in in all these other online communities right now and i'm trying to give myself a break because right. a moment where you think you know there's the um <laughs> just in time learning and the just in case learning and i needed to do more of the first <laughs> less than the second but i i wanted to say though that i had a chance to get to know fei wu uh from alt mba and she has this nice podcasters hangout and um so every two weeks she is inspiring people by hosting this regular space and I got to go on and, and present some content. Um, I show up just to kind of like meet other people. Fantastic. And, you know, part of it is I mentioned this because I don't think you even realize, you know, the spiral of where things go, the ripple effect of you inspiring her and her gathering people together. And she's cool about it because it's not just alt MBAers, but that's sort of the, the premise of it. Sure. But she's inviting others to join in and of course, then I'm like, well, I want, I'm even more curious about this program. And it's, you know, it sort of sells itself once you know, people are talking about it and they're sharing the ideas from it. So meeting across cohorts, which is really great, you know, yeah. you know, and, you know a key part of it, I, I really, I would like to be judged not by what I taught, but by what the people I taught, taught, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that future generation. Um, but we made a decision after Alt-MBA too, and it was, we don't want this to be bigger. Mm-hmm. every corner when we have to make a decision, how do we make this better? So we've had 2,500 alumni. I know I could have had 10 times that number if I'd compromised two or three things, mm-hmm. not interested. And yeah. so I don't go out and pitch it. I tell people about it because if it's for them, I'd love for them to know, but we don't have, we don't try to close sales. We don't try to push it because we're not trying to fill the building. There is no building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, so what, what has been challenging? So, you know, I hear part of what you're saying is you're, you almost are trying not to just build the following just to have a following. You want to have people who are actually interested in what you offer and have, have it be valuable to them. And that yeah. because it's valuable, they'll share it. Um, not just because you're, you know, the iconic person that they all want to be around, which I think is some personalities are really good at building followings based simply on who they are, not so much what they offer. But what's challenging for you in trying to like kind of make your way. I think it's a different path to walk as many of the things you do are. What, what have you learned and what do you, how do you, how do you uh, deal with those challenges? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And just to be clear, I'm not even in the alt MBA. It's running right now. You will not see me there the whole time. I'm not in it. Uh, that's on purpose. 
it's very tempting to make yourself the center of a thing because it's so much easier because we live in a culture where that's what people want. Like when I go to an event and give a speech and if there's a book signing afterwards, it used to be people wait in line, I'd sign a book and they'd be happy. Now, no one wants a book. Everyone wants a selfie, right? That the, the proximity to the author is worth more than the author's ideas. Uh-huh. And that's frustrating because I love books, but I'm totally aware that that's going on. So I just keep pushing my ideas forward. But what's frustrating, particularly when we talk to people about the Alt-MBA, is there are two reasons not to take it if you can afford it. The two reasons not to take it are it might not work, right? And so we show them the hundreds of testimonials and the list of it, and they go, oh, well, then the real problem is it might work. And that is the core of, of what I've been trying to do for 10 or 15 years, which is the status quo is powerful because the status quo is good at fighting change. Mm-hmm. And most of the things that we don't do, we don't do because we're afraid they're going to work. We're afraid that they will cause us to change to become a different person. And that introduces tension and tension is always present before change and tension can get us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So, so people have to walk themselves through that. Um, it's interesting. I, I just started writing a post that's going to come out in a little while about how when we see the human side, the fallibility of the people we look up to, we don't really want to see that because then it means, well, wait a second, then maybe, maybe we're also a kind of person others might look up to wait, that means that maybe they're not just better at this and have it easier. Maybe we also can, can work as hard. Oh, I don't want to know that. <laughs> like, I don't want to see that. That's interesting because there's also this disaster theater that's going on on the internet everywhere you look. That uh, we, the minute someone appears to have a flaw, that's the single best way to get traffic. That's mm-hmm. the single best way. The, the, people who slow down at a rubbernecking thing, uh, I don't understand that at all. Like if know. I came to your house and said, hey, you want to see a movie of dead people? You'd probably say no. But if you're driving on the highway and say, there might be dead people over there. Should we slow down and look? Everyone slows down. And it's, that's partly human nature, I guess. But the internet is really good at building people up and then tearing people down. And uh, so I've tried hard to be clear about my failures. There are many. I've never once guaranteed that something is going to work. And I am far from perfect. I am a hypocrite and I'm not as hardworking as I could be and I'm not consistent. And I don't want people to think that I'm some perfect guru because I'm not a guru. I'm just a teacher who's trying to make a ruckus. You are, you are a teacher trying to make a ruckus. That is the perfect description of you, Seth. So I want to ask you some questions about this whole networking and building relationships piece. And you've mentioned, you know, clearly you, you know a lot of people and a lot more people know you. So what are your intentions or habits around not connecting just with the close circles, but like that like second and third layer out, you know, the people that you meet a couple of times at an event, uh, they interact with you, you work with them at some point, you like them. You and I may differ on this. And I think the reason we may differ is because not because of you, but because of the way some of the people who use ideas from people like you misuse them. Mm -hmm. And so I think this, the idea of trading favors and lunching up is inherently selfish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't like it when it's done to me and I don't do it to people. Mm-hmm. Zero. I don't think we disagree on that. And I'm, yeah, but it's, there are people who use the word networking to yes. describe that behavior. And so that's would, actually, I'm so glad you're saying it. No, I agree. I agree. I'm being super clear here that yeah. when people start doing it to me, the whole conversation just shuts down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned Dory. Dory is co-works in my office sometimes. Dory is great. Dory has never asked me for anything because she's not trading up. She's not lunching around. She's doing her work. And um, so for me, the way I think about this is we're in a community and it's not a community that's based on scarce capital. Mm-hmm. It's a community that's based on generous connection. And generous connection is accretive. It creates value as you go. And my whole life was formed um, by the summer camp where I used to work. I was just there last week, 43rd summer. And um, there's, it's an economy, but there's no cash. There's no prizes. There's nothing to buy. So what kind of economy is it? It's an economy of seeing others and helping them. 
period. There's no and then. There's no, no right hook ever comes. It's just here, here, here. And so I don't do a good job at all of second or third circle people. Like someone in my office asked me the other day, do you know someone at this company? Because we could really use their help with something. No, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. And so the idea then is how do you just keep putting more chips in the middle and don't worry about when it's your turn to take the pot. That's the way that I do it. And um, I am well aware that there are people who are significantly better at honest, virtuous networking than me and they benefit from it. I just don't do it. I'm, I don't, I'm bad at it. Do you draw any distinctions as you're giving uh, to recognize that some people are also givers, not necessarily to you, but they're, they're constantly making the pie bigger. And then there's people who are always looking to be tit for tat. Yep. And then there are takers. Yep. So sure. as you're aware of that, does that change your behavior at all? Eventually it does. And Adam Grant and I have talked about this. Um, there are conferences I don't go to anymore because the only people who were there were takers. Mm. And you, after a while, you know, I, I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but after a while you're like, Oh, I get this. No, goodbye. Yeah. And um, the tit for tat thing also makes me uncomfortable because then I feel like they are judging me as if I was waiting for my tat. Right. Right. But that's not my agenda. Yeah. And um, so I don't send Christmas cards, mm -hmm. but there are people who are offended that I'm not re returning their Christmas card. But <laughs> I didn't grow up sending Christmas cards. And I don't understand that whole, wait, you're on my list, why not on your list thing? And if you want to send a Christmas card, send a Christmas card, but just send it, not because you're hoping to get a Christmas card back. Right, right. So it's interesting because I, I actually practice the philosophy of abundance, which really goes along with your ideas around how ideas spread. I think if I give away money or time, then I'm, I don't have as much money and time, but I give away ideas. If you give away knowledge, then it has the potential to create so much more and right. it doesn't deplete me at all. So I'm exactly. always trying to think about that. But then I've also had to learn the hard lesson that there are those takers who take your idea, run with it, and like you never see them and they sell it and whatnot. And so it's like you, you want to always be on the abundant side of that equation and sometimes you should just assess who's around you, I guess, because... Well, it's interesting, though, because I don't feel the same way about ideas. My take on ideas is, you know, there are more than $5 billion companies that are based on my ideas, for wow. which I have received zero. And that's fine with me. I am thrilled. If the alternative was there were no companies based on my ideas, that would be way worse. That's a good point. Right? So I... It, you know, in Unleashing the Idea Virus, which is still free after all these years, which has been downloaded more than 5 million times, I, I say ideas that spread win. Steal this idea. On several pages in the book, it says steal this idea. I want people to do that as long as they steal it in a way that makes our culture better. What makes mm -hmm. me feel terrible is if a politician or someone is using my work in a direction that I abhor, because then I feel partly responsible for that. Of course, I'm not because I just put the idea in the world. They're responsible. But once an idea is out there, it's like a toddler. It's on its own. Go, go, go. This is really interesting because for some reason, I'm thinking of Saul Alinsky. And yep. there are right-wingers who use his books to organize. And I, you know, I did a post about his rules, 12 rules, um, about five, six months ago. If you read them, they're abhorrent. And I don't think his ends justify those means. I don't think those rules are good for our culture, even if you are fighting for the things that are right. Mm -hmm. And I think the Reverend King and that Gandhi would agree that that's not the way we make the culture better. Mm -hmm. I think anyone who's made it this far into our recording, I strongly encourage you, go read Alinsky's rules. Go read my take on it. Make your own decision. Because yeah. what I did was I took the 12 rules and I wrote the opposite of all 12. I'm going to put a link... I'll find that, yeah. What happens if you do the opposite of what Saul said in all 12 ways? And it turns out that's really great. So <laughs> that's what I'm hoping will happen. I'm glad I brought this up then because I'll put a link in the show notes to both of those resources. So my, my favorite and last question is, so we're connecting again a year from now. I want to hear all the achievements, the accomplishments. The, what are you looking forward to in the next year? What are we going to be celebrating 
when we when we are checking in again. I, I, like I, you got this book coming out. So what's what's on the horizon for you? You know, it's always the same thing. It's what did the people who learned from me do? That's what I want to brag about. Mm. That's great. So Seth, where can people find you and follow your work? Uh, the marketing seminar, which is again in January, is at themarketingseminar.com. AltMBA is at altmba.com. And you can read my daily blog at seths.blog. And I have a podcast, almost as good as this one, called Akimbo. And uh, there are dozens and dozens of episodes, and that's free too. That's fantastic. Well, I hope everyone go check that out at onthechmooze.com. See all the links. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. This was a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for doing it. I'll see you around. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Seth. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for the encore of episode 120. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.